Hey listeners, I'm Adam, and this is Can I Ask You a Question, a podcast where anyone is welcome to join me for an episode to share their thoughts on a topic of their choice. I'm looking forward to hearing new opinions and perspectives, and hopefully becoming a bit more open-minded along the way. If you're interested in joining me for a future episode, feel free to check out the sign-up link in this episode's description. This episode is brought to you by the Everyday App. Technically, this is an ad, but the Everyday app has honestly been super helpful for me, and I wouldn't partner with a company if I didn't genuinely believe in the product. So, what does the app do? It basically helps you track your habits so that you can see your progress over time. There's a common business saying, what gets measured gets managed. Like I said, it usually applies to businesses, keeping track of things like their sales and customer satisfaction, but I think it's just as relevant for personal goals too. It sounds like a simple concept for an app, but I've personally found it to be super effective in helping create new habits. The app lets you add whatever habits you're currently working on building. For me right now, some of those include reviewing my to-do list each day uh, so that I stay on top of the things I want to get done. Another one is going to the gym, and another one is limiting my time on Twitter to five minutes a day. The app lets you add three habits for free, so you can see if you find it helpful. If you soon realize you want to track more than three habits, like I eventually did, the paid version lets you track unlimited habits and has other cool features, and it's pretty good value in my opinion. There's a link in the episode description that gets you 10% off. All right, let's jump into today's conversation. Testing, testing. I can hear you. Hello. Hey, Doug. How are you, Adam? Good, thanks. How are you doing? I'm doing fantastic. It's been a great day so far. How about you? Doing well, thanks. Nice. What have you been? What have you been working on so far today? Today, I have I have had a couple client sessions, and then I've been working on a new lead magnet. I used to give out free hypnosis, but then I realized that people weren't really valuing it as free hypnosis. So now I'm giving that as like a a low cost. Anyway, working on that, working like cool. on the business, not so much in the business. Cool. Although, like the lead magnets were these sessions you were putting on YouTube? Yeah, kind of. Well, I did it for a while. I put out free hypnosis on instagram and a couple on youtube um and as i was saying like i find that you you need to have some investment it doesn't have to be like you're paying full price but yeah um if you're giving something for free they don't people don't really value it and so um i I still want to give those resources but i also want to make sure people are actually getting benefits from what i'm giving out so yeah makes sense well anyways nice to meet you and uh thanks for taking time to chat i appreciate it Absolutely. Um, I I spent time looking at like a bunch of podcasts you've been on recently <laughs> yeah. related to the topic of hypnosis. So yeah. I've learned a bunch today, but I, nice. I still want to ask you a bunch about it. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think for me, similar to what I heard from a lot of people who you chatted with, um, they had a, a uh, an image in their mind of what hypnosis was, which... Um, doesn't necessarily match with what you with what you do. So yeah. um, I'm curious if you don't mind uh, explaining your view of what hypnosis is. What hypnosis is in my definition. The easiest way that I found to describe it is that hypnosis is meditation with a goal. And that is that's a quote from Gray Smith, another hypnotist in the field. And What we're doing in hypnosis is we are simply allowing our mind to create change at a rapid pace. We are putting ourselves in 
uh, brainwave frequencies where we can make those change very changes very rapidly. And I find it's like, you know how it's like, it takes like 28 days or 31 days to create a habit. Yeah. I find that most of what I do in hypnosis is simply taking that 28 day habit path, removing the willpower, removing the time and doing it in a single session so that we, when we put it in the unconscious mind, they don't have to talk themselves into it. It's just a habit that's already there for them. Cool. Thanks. And I was listening to to some of your, your free guided, uh, hypnosis sessions on YouTube. Uh, and I found the similarities to, to guided meditations that I'm familiar mm-hmm. with. And I think generally speaking, people are more familiar with guided meditations. Do you mind, do you mind explaining in your, in your mind, what the difference is, um, between listening to a guided meditation versus a guided hypnosis? Yeah. First, let's, let's talk about the the similarities just to okay. establish that, Thanks. uh, it all comes down to the brain waves. And I'm sure you've heard me mention this, um, when we're in our normal everyday conversation, we're at beta frequency. And when we are in hypnosis, we are dropping down the scale. Our brains are slowing down kind of towards sleep and they drop from uh, beta to alpha, which is like a light trance where you're in, um, I don't know, watching a good movie or get it zoning out when you're in the car. And below that is theta. That's where we're aiming for in hypnosis because that's where we find the greatest changes. Now, solo meditation doesn't often slow down your brain. It actually speeds it up. But in guided meditation, that's that weird middle ground between hypnosis and meditation because you are slowing down your brain waves just as you would in hypnosis. And what I find from listening to guided meditations is that oftentimes these teachers are pulling in resources from hypnosis, whether it's the language patterns or it's the visualizations or it's the different psychological tools that I can clearly see are from this hypnotic background. I don't know if they're doing that intentionally or it's just become part of the the nomenclature in um, guided meditations. But what happens in a guided meditation, you are slowing your brain waves down the same way as with hypnosis. Most guided meditations will get you to that alpha state light trance. But if a teacher really knows what they're doing or you're really feeling it, you can get down to that theta state. And the difference between hypnosis and guided meditations is what you do when you get down there. When you're in the middle of the trance, there are some guided meditations that will give you some beneficial suggestions like uh, feeling confident or calm or whatever it is in your life. And that's a very rudimentary form of hypnosis. We call that direct suggestion in hypnosis. And when you're in an actual hypnosis session, you can use other tools, things like uh, visualization and changing memories and building in anchors. And I personally find that guided meditations can create some powerful changes just with those direct suggestions, but the, the flexibility of what you can do and the changes you can make and the problems you can work with are so much greater in hypnosis. Cool. Yeah. The concept of brainwaves and 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 monitoring them and and watching them is interesting to me. I mean, I'm familiar with, and I think most people like the common things that people track are, you know, like heart rate through a fitness tracker, mm. you know, body temperature, cholesterol, or like common health things that are tracked. Um, are you familiar with like I think it's called Muse is the headband? I am. Yes. Okay, because yeah. I heard about that recently from a friend. Does, is do you know is does the muse headband is that what it's tracking does it track brain 
brainwaves? You know, I personally don't know on that, but okay. a fun, a fun story. When I was training for hypnosis, I, I trained in Toronto, Canada, and That's during our, our, come again? That's where I live. Oh, really? Nice. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I was training at um, St. Michael's College, I believe. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the last day that we were there, we had a neuroscientist come in and they brought in those Muse devices and we put people in hypnosis. And um, I don't exactly remember whether it was the brainwave patterns or uh, exactly what it was. That research came further on down my path. But um, the neuroscientists, they're studying this stuff just as much as hypnotists are, for sure. Cool. And in terms of like people wrapping their head around what is the benefit of mm-hmm. hypnosis, because if they're not familiar with it. So for me, at least personally for me, I've experimented with meditation. I've never had, I'd say what I'd call a habit around it where it's yeah. been consistent. But what I've found like in terms of, because people often ask me with meditation, like what's the practical kind of benefit. And yeah. for me through guided meditations, like an example of one I've found helpful is when they ask you to like count your breath um, up to 10 and repeat that and notice if you uh, lose your focus and stop counting your breath and see how long it takes you to actually realize, oh, wait, I stopped counting my breath yeah. two minutes ago and I got lost in a in a thought pattern that I didn't notice. So that's been helpful for me um, to just become more aware of how much kind of thoughts are sometimes out of our control or we don't even notice that that we're going down there certain yeah. thought patterns. So I'm curious, like, how would you, what would be the parallel maybe through hypnosis around something kind of practical that someone would take away from a session? Yeah. What I find, um, as you mentioned, meditations and both guided and solo, they're often about just focusing on things. And, um, as you, you know, I meditate as well. And, uh, I do often notice like sometimes my mind drifts away and I notice it. Sometimes my mind is so far gone. I don't even realize it until I'm almost done with meditation. Yeah. And I think the, the takeaway with that is that hypnosis, when, it, when you're doing self-hypnosis, it's a, it's a little bit different because you have to be both the person doing the hypnosis and the person in hypnosis. So that at that time, it can be a little difficult to maintain that focus, but when you are in hypnosis with a hypnotist, you can really lose focus consciously because your unconscious mind is listening. And that's the beauty of it. Your unconscious mind, for all of us, it's always listening because it's keeping us safe. It's that fight, flight, or freeze response. And that's kind of where it comes from. But what I find in hypnosis is that even if you struggle in meditation with keeping your focus, like I guess we all do, um, that's not such a big issue in hypnosis because that's your conscious mind is really not the part of you that the hypnotist is communicating with. And what I was touching on with self-hypnosis versus uh, hypnosis with another person is that you don't have to attempt to maintain that focus because the other person is doing it for you. They're fully aware. They're going to guide you where you want to go. And um, yeah, does that answer the question? Yeah, it does. Thanks. Um, why, what are, do you have any thoughts on why hypnosis hasn't become as mainstream, like at least so far as, <laughs> as meditation? Um, oh, <laughs> yeah, I wonder that myself, like looking in the past decades at how mindfulness has just taken off so yeah. much. 
Um, I think it all comes down to the misconceptions that we have around hypnosis. So a brief history of hypnosis, just to touch on it. Uh, we've had hypnosis since the ancient Greeks. That's actually where the, um, the word hypnos- hypnosis comes from. The god Hypnos was the god of sleep. And they would build temples and people would go to these places, put themselves in trance and do all kind of crazy, freaky stuff. But um, it really, hypnosis as a scientific thing got started around the Victorian age. I believe in 1892, that was the first major medical association approved it. That was the British Medical Association. But um, I think it all came down to the the stage show side of hypnosis. There was a point in time where the medical establishment was really kind of railing on hypnosis because of its um, history with mesmerism. And uh, when someone says, you know, they were mesmerized, that actually comes from a, uh, one of the, one of the early practitioners in hypnosis uh, to give you a brief history of mesmer. Uh, he, he practiced something called magnetism, which you would wave a magnet over someone and uh, their blood clotting would stop, which in those days when they didn't have, uh, they had rudimentary tools was really important. One day Mesmer forgot his magnets. And so he just grabbed a stick and passed it over the wound and using their mind, the person, you know, they clotted the wound. And instead of saying, you know, this is probably the person's, um, this is the problem, the person's own body doing this solution. Mesmer realized was like, I'm a God. And so uh, we get there, like Mesmer, there have been a lot of, um, there have been a lot of theatrical hypnotists. And we saw that a lot when the uh, medical establishment was really uh, trying to debunk hypnosis and driving a lot of hypnotists underground, essentially. But uh, the stage show side was still alive and well. And when people kind of rail against the stage show, I've got to remind them that without the stage show, the comedy side of things, hypnosis, as we know, it wouldn't still be around today. And so I think that Hypnosis as a therapeutic sense or as a clinical sense, it's been growing recently. In the past decades, it has been expanding quite a bit. And uh, hypnotists are experiencing kind of a renaissance right now of uh, people entering the field. I know doctors and psychologists and pharmacists who are getting training in this stuff. I think over the next couple of decades, it is going to expand. I think it's just because of the, the theatrical side of hypnosis, we've got that stigma to go against. I mean, there was never a stage shows for mindfulness. And so it didn't really have to work against that. Got it. I think, I think in one of the episodes I listened to that on a podcast you were on, you talked about some of the, I think there was seven different techniques that you often use related to Mm -hmm. hypnosis. One of them that I remember was uh, EFT. I think something really do you mind explaining what that is and, and your view on how you use it or its effectiveness? Absolutely. So a preframe to that in hypnosis, because it's one of those out there techniques, when we go to conferences, we often rub shoulders with people who also practice other out there techniques. One of those techniques is called EFT. Uh, it, stands, it's, it stands for emotional freedom technique, I believe. And it's all about tapping different parts of your body different acupressure meridians um, to relieve, I don't know if it's energy or stress or whatever it is that they technically define it. I know just enough about EFT to be dangerous, I guess I should say. (laughs) Um, The cool thing about acupressure and Qigong and energy work is that 
these meridians have been discovered around the world. It's not just like an ancient Eastern philosophy. There have been uh, remains discovered in, um, in Europe of people, of prehistoric people who are using these tapping mechanisms. I mean, know that because they have tattooed these locations on their body and they perfectly line up with the locations that uh, were studied in acupressure and acupuncture, you know, hundreds of thousands of miles away in the East. And where I'm going with that, back to EFT. EFT is all about tapping certain locations on your body to relieve that negative emotion. And the technique I practice, it has six steps and you tap through each of the steps. And as you're doing that, you are saying um, something to keep that negative emotion or whatever it is you want to work on at the top of mind. So when I work with anxiety relief, I have them say like anxiety relief or like anxious feelings as they're tapping to reduce that. And they do three to four rounds of it. And I always encourage them to bring it to zero, to teach your brain that um, this is a problem you are all right living without. If someone brings it, you know, halfway down, they get relief, but then they're also teaching their brain it's okay to have a little bit of anxiety. Thanks. Yeah, when I was when I was looking into emotional freedom techniques, um, I was just reading up on Wikipedia, and I noticed so. Wikipedia, like it said that um, the consensus is that beyond like a placebo effect, um, it doesn't, there isn't scientific evidence to support it um, and that it's generally characterized as pseudoscience. And, and it said similar things about acupuncture, which I was a bit surprised. Like I've never done acupuncture or EFT, mm. but for instance, in the acupuncture, acupressure realm, I have an acupressure mat that I lie on for like back pain and stress relief. And I, I love it and I find it very effective. So anyways, I guess I'm trying to think of the the question I'm trying to ask you, but I'm curious, like, do you view it as a pseudoscience? Do you think that, or do you think that the scientific community like might change their stance on, on this type of um, therapy? What's your, what's your view? (laughs) Gosh, I really, you know, I wish there was the science to to back it up, like the research to back it up. Because hypnosis, when someone comes in and like, like hypnosis is fake, I can say, no, clearly, like we've got this century of research to back this up. I can't always say that with EFT and the other techniques I practice. Okay. I always tell people that you can use these techniques if you want to. I mean, I'm not going to force them on you for sure. Um, other people have found extreme results with these. I've heard some amazing, amazing results with these. I've heard of people uh, curing their fibromyalgia with this stuff. I've heard of people dealing with chronic pain, uh, mental illnesses. And I'm in that same boat. I want the science of it. But at the same time, I think it's coming. I think it's coming down the pipeline. I mean, the 1950s doctors were smoking just along with the rest of everybody. And um, back in the 1850s, we were using magnets to stop people's bleeding. I mean, like society or science and the medical establishment, it catches up and it retracts statements that it has made and takes back attacks that it has placed on other things. For a long time, people were trying to disprove hypnosis. And that's why we've got such a effective body of research behind it to say, no, this actually does work. And I think 
if EFT is on the same trajectory as hypnosis, we're going to see a lot more research in the future about it. What What would you suggest for someone listening who's skeptical um, related to some of the evidence in support of hypnosis? Do you know of any any specific like articles or anything you would direct them to? Any people to look to read into? Oh yes, I have. Actually, on my website, I've I've got like seven or eight of my favorite research studies. Um, I can get uh, some quick facts about hypnosis. In 1892, it was approved by the British Medical Association, as you know. Yeah. In the 1950s, it was approved by the American Medical Association, later by the National Institute of Health, the American Psychological Association. I'm actually working with a cancer group out of Utah right now to um, bring hypnosis to cancer patients because it's a recommended treatment by the National Cancer Institute. So those are some quick facts. I believe there is a, if someone really wants to deep dive into the hypnosis, someone in the field of hypnosis has compiled some of the best research on hypnosis, like 101 studies on hypnosis. His name is Richard Nongard, and he offers that for free online. Just send your email or whatever. And um, that's a great starting point for that. Thanks. Uh, I'll check, I'll check out Richard and I'll check out your, your website as well. Absolutely. Um, related to your comment earlier around some of the differences between meditation and hypnosis, you mentioned meditation you can do on your own. Hypnosis requires um, two people. Mm-hmm. Do you think that hypnosis could exist in in like a um, in a guided form, like through an app, where it's because I know you do the live live sessions, right? Yeah. Um, but I know that apps like Calm and Headspace, which are meditation apps, have become very popular. I'm curious, do you think hypnosis might end up in that direction where oh, there's absolutely. an app where it's, yeah. yeah. There's actually, I mean, the hypnotists are not, not the most technical people. They're most, <laughs> a, a brief note, like I am probably one of the um, youngest clinical hypnotists. Every, when I go to conferences, everyone else is older than me by like 20 years. And so <laughs> that note being aside, Uh, There is at least one major hypnosis app already out there. And hypnotists have been putting out pre-recorded audios uh, for for decades now. Uh, You can use hypnosis without an actual hypnotist being there. And it's a very effective way to get started in in hypnosis. Uh, These these tracks run anywhere from like 20 bucks to like 50 bucks or something. Very cost effective. And for a long time, people were wondering like how effective are these actual tracks? And they did a study on it. And depending on how invested a person was in that change, they can be just as effective to listen to that pre-recorded track as to have an actual hypnotist. Now to create a a pre-recorded track, the hypnotist has to be a little flexible because when you're working one-on-one, you can tailor make it exactly to that person. But in an audio track, you've got to, um, expand it out and make sure it, it hits with the general audience. Yeah. Yeah. It makes sense. Um, do you have any examples like personal examples with, um, that you're able to share, um, related to people you you've worked with clients you've worked with and, um, some of the benefits that they've seen? Absolutely. Um, as it, I work with confidential information, so I am bound by HIPAA confidentiality. So all names are changed. Uh, the one I often tell is the story of Bill. 
He was a CEO out of uh, California and he came to me because he'd gone over the handlebars of his mountain bike and he was having anxiety about getting back on. And we went and we worked in, on his memories about biking and the anxieties he was feeling on it. And it became very clear that it wasn't just this issue that we were dealing with. And we looked at his timeline and his past memories. And there was this memory when he was very young that he had completely blocked out. He didn't even remember it consciously. He had been like, I don't know, three or four or something around that time age. One of the first times he rode a bike, his family, his father had not tightened the training wheels enough and one of them fell off. And he had that terrifying moment of losing complete control and tipping over and falling on the concrete. And when we worked with that memory, we were able to uh, give him resources and strip away that negative emotion so that he no longer felt that fear. And uh, he, he came out of the session. He was, he was a little bit dazed and like, uh, and um, he called me up a couple of weeks later and he said he was seeing amazing changes, not only on the mountain bike, but in his business as well. He was having new courage to pursue new business opportunities and to um, also start a blog that he'd been working on for three years. And, or I should say he'd been, you know, trying to start for three years. And that's the story of Bill. Uh, just actually um, a couple months ago, I worked with a woman, uh, let's call her Jenny or something. She was out of West Virginia and she came to me for smoking cessation and we worked with smoking cessation, got that figured out. And I threw in a few suggestions about confidence just as a bonus. And I talked to her not long after that. And Jenny said that she'd actually left her relationship. And I was a little stunned by that. Um, you know, sometimes we have unexpected consequences, usually in the good sense. But she said, I, I link it back to that hypnosis session because you gave me suggestions about confidence. And I'd been sitting in that relationship for years because I hadn't felt confident enough to leave it. And so not only knowing that she could quit smoking gave her that confidence, but those suggestions built her up that she could pursue something that was a little more uh, beneficial for her life. Thanks for sharing those stories. And congrats on having such a big impact on people. That's Absolutely. Awesome. I, I'm still honored to this day that I can, I can help people in such amazing ways. I get, I get, I get the calls and the part of me is like, Oh man, like we actually work together. We created that change. It, it blows my mind. So Doug, the way you described those sessions, it sounded like in some, in some aspects, there was some two way dialogue where you're asking the client questions maybe and trying to surface things. Mm -hmm. Is that the case? Cause my, my perception of hypnosis is that it's more like one way, like the, the client is not responding, but yeah. they're being hypnotized. So there are two ideas of clinical hypnosis. There's the, the traditional model, which is the hypnotist literally just tells you what to do, what to fix. And then there's the, what we call the Ericksonian model based off of Milton Erickson. And then that came around in the 1950s or so. Um, anyway, Ericksonian hypnosis is all about offering the, the client options because when you offer them, when you offer someone um, an inclusion in their change process, the results that you get are so much more effective. They're invested in it. And taking that one step further, 
when you're communicating with someone's unconscious mind, you are using what are called idiomotor, sorry, they're called idiomotor signals. And these are um, muscle responses. And it's not just like you're looking for someone's finger to twitch and like, oh, that, that's a yes. What we're doing, we're setting these up in the, in the very beginning stages of the, um, of the session. To walk through a very popular um, idiomotor program, it's called the SWAN. It's by Bob Burns, I believe. But you have a person put their elbow on the table and then they have their little hand here. And then you're talking to the person and then you gradually switch and you say, now I want to talk to the person, the part of you that controls such and such problem. And when, uh, when you're ready to give me a yes signal, go ahead and twitch one of those fingers on that hand. And usually within five seconds, one of their fingers twitches and the person freaks out. They're like, I didn't do that. Like, what was that? And I am, I, I love that one because it shows them the power of their own mind. And so when working with the swan, we talk to that part and we say, uh, we say, give me a sign for yes. And then it twitches and then give me a sign for no. And then another finger twitches or another signal twitches. Now there are some ways or some forms of hypnosis where you can get direct communication. Like a person can communicate and speak in trance. The problem with that is that you typically can't do that when a person is all the way in that theta state. They're usually in a light trance. And so I've found it's more effective to communicate with yes or no answers with the idiomotor responses rather than to communicate and get uh, a vocalized response. Thanks. Um, in the, in the second example of the two stories you gave, yeah. you talked about smoking cessation. Um, so when I, when I look on Wikipedia and not by no means should Wikipedia be <laughs> the, the, the source for, for quality information, but it does, it does um, reference different kind of academic journals and stuff. So one line it says is that hypnosis for pain management is likely to decrease acute and chronic pain in most individuals. Although meta studies on the eff efficacy of hypnotherapy show little or no effect for some other problems such as smoking cessation. So my question is like, how confident are you on the link versus placebo? Like, do you think, like you mentioned, and I totally agree with you that sometimes the scientific um, consensus can change on things. Mm -hmm. So I'm just curious, like, where do you stand on the likelihood that the scientific consensus will change versus more evidence showing that it would be a placebo or, yeah. or it's not the hypnosis aspect and maybe it's the, the talk therapy component that's driving yeah. it. So many things to break up there. Yes. <laughs> um, hypnosis for smoking is actually not the most effective use of hypnosis. Okay. It's actually one of the things that um, hypnotists are like, yeah, I don't really want to do hypnosis, but that's what everyone comes to me for. I think that's because smoking is such a binary issue. It's what we call a digital issue. It's either off or it's on. You either are smoking or you're not smoking. Yeah. Whereas working with someone with weight loss, that's an analog issue. You are at different points on that scale. And so when a person sees that change, that, um, that per, you know, they stop smoking, we've built it up in our society to be so hard. And when you actually um, make that change and it, you know, you link it to something like hypnosis, it blows people's mind and they talk about it. Now, the thing that makes hypnosis for smoking cessation so difficult is that 
it comes down to the idea of threshold. When a person is ready to make the change, the change is easy to make as long as you have the right tools. It's the reason that a, a person who finds out they're about to be a parent can stop smoking or drinking whatever their issue is like overnight yeah. because they're ready to make that change. When a person signs up for a smoking cessation um, session, they're usually in that frame of mind. But the problem is it might be a week or two weeks before their actual session. So when they show up, they're like, well, I already paid for this. I might as well go and try it out. And so they're no longer invested in that change process. And that's why I think hypnosis for smoking cessation isn't often as effective as other types of hypnosis. Now, you mentioned confidence. And that is one of the huge things that they teach you uh, when you're doing hypnosis training. Not so much because it's a placebo thing with hypnosis, but because if I come into a hypnosis session and I'm like all bent over, I'm like, well, well, I don't know, we'll kind of see if this works and try some other stuff. A person's not going to invest in that because they don't, they're reading my body language. They need to know that I believe in hypnosis. When I come in and I say, you know, we've got a hundred years of research behind hypnosis and I believe it, I do it every single day on myself and I'm living it. That bridges that, that belief that um, it can happen for them. Our conscious mind can really interrupt the effects of hypnosis. When a person believes that hypnosis is not going to work on them, no matter what you do, it probably won't because their conscious mind is going to literally block anything that you attempt to do. But when you are confident about it and you get that conscious buy-in, you get so much more effective results. And one more thing that I want to touch on, you mentioned yeah, sure. hypnosis for pain relief. Yeah. That is one of the most effective uses for hypnosis, especially chronic pain relief. There is a hypnotist out of the UK, very famous for working with chronic pain. His name is Freddie Jackwin, anyone interested. Um, and he, he explained it to me once this way, that pain, especially chronic pain, is just a signal sent from one part of our body to our brains. And in the case of chronic pain, whether that's a back issue or a past injury that they had, it's their body sending that signal to make sure that they don't re-injure that thing. But the problem is if that part is, is continually sending those messages, then you're not aware of new pain that might crop up. And so you might be hurting yourself further because you can't feel it because you're still feeling this chronic pain. Yeah. And so it's a redundant signal. And so what they do in hypnosis, in those senses, we get agreement from that part of you that controls that pain response that, okay, we know that, you know, this is an old injury and the person is consciously aware they should not um, you know, injure themselves again. Is it all right to reduce the signal? And almost always get the yes response. And so we reduce the signal and oftentimes it goes away completely. Sometimes it goes away a little bit. Now there are a couple of caveats to build into that. One, we always make sure that their mind knows that if, if, they, if they're doing something ridiculous, like about to re-injure themselves, they can bring back that pain as a message. Um, also, we want to make sure not to do it with acute pain or especially without a doctor's note. Because if I work on someone's pain for, a, for an ankle you know, problem, let's say, and they've never been to the doctor yet, and I don't have that doctor's note, 
they could have a broken ankle and potentially we could reduce that pain, but they might walk around and injure themselves further. And so when working with pain, I personally always get a doctor's note. And that's what I'd say about that. Interesting. On going back to, you mentioned kind of two different forms of hypnosis. Mm -hmm. One of them's kind of one way, one of them's two way. Do you find one of the two methods more effective? Do you use one of the two methods more than the other? Personally, I really like the the two-way hypnosis, but there, I, in hypnosis, I always attempt to meet the person where they're at. Uh, that's why I ground myself in science so that I can work with doctors and psychologists and psychiatrists. But if someone wants to come in and they're a little, they're feeling woo-woo and they're like, I want to learn what I was, you know, what my life was like in the 12th century or something. I'm like, all right, let's go there today. Um, I always find that I want to um, take people to that secondary or that two-way hypnosis, but sometimes people have it built up as hypnosis as that one-way model. Yeah. I was working just this week with someone I was attempting to do the two-way model, and uh, I really wasn't getting that much response. And finally, I was just like, I've just got to be very direct. Like They were giving me one-word responses in their intake interview, and it was like, I should have seen it from the start. Like This is probably what's going to be most effective for them. It's all about giving the client what's going to give them best changes. Cool. For for the two-way model, do you have any videos um, on your YouTube page? Like, do you have any examples where a, maybe a client has been willing to, to, to be shared in a video to like to give people potential new clients, like a sense, a better sense of what that model looks like? Gosh, I actually, that's a great idea. I don't yet, but if someone wants to, we talked about uh, idiomotor work. If someone wants to see that in action, just Google Bob Burns, the swan, and that will give you a really, I mean, there's, I'm sure there's hundreds of videos out there on it. Uh, that will give you a good idea of what an interactive hypnosis session might actually look like for you. Thanks. And if someone, if someone listening is interested in potentially like working with you, is there a particular video? I know you have a lot of videos on your YouTube channel. Is there a particular one or a particular place you would want to direct them to learn a bit more? Mm. I would say if someone wants to experience hypnosis, I do have some past uh, resources more so on my Instagram than YouTube, but I can put those up there as well. Um, uh, I've done work with anxiety relief and food cravings and seasonal affective disorder. And I put those up for free on my Instagram page. Uh, just search through my IGTV channel. My handle is at making your meaning. And I do have some free hypnosis giveaways on my, uh, my website. And that is anywherehypnosis.com. Thanks. And Doug, do you have, do you have a sense of like what percentage of your clients walk away feeling like it was worthwhile or a positive experience? I know Absolutely. it might not work for everyone, but do you have a sense? Yeah. As with anything, any uh, change modality, hypnosis is not 100% effective all the yeah. time. I would say that right around that um, 80 to 90% mark. Uh, when I started off, I was seeing about a 70%. And then it was, I was really learning these techniques and getting confident in them and showing people that I can get these results, my my effectiveness really went up. I would say uh, most months, it's right around that 85%. And how many 
like how many sessions do you recommend or typically have with a, with a client uh, over what period of time? Is it is it an ongoing thing? Yeah, I know a lot of hypnotists who say I can fix an issue in a single session, and that that's cool and that sounds great for marketing. But what I find is it's like you're ripping out that problem and slapping up something in its place, and it's not very elegant, and the change is probably not going to last forever. I find that the best results come with a program. Typically, I recommend clients go through AS program, typically three to five sessions is a great place to start. And it's usually about a week in between sessions. Uh, some, some different issues, uh, they require more than that. Some are very, you know, they're like for when I'm working with weight loss, it's typically like four sessions and that's it because that's all I need. But when I'm working with a really big issue, sometimes it does take more than that. Thanks. Oh, and I wanted to ask you, what is your thoughts on NLP or neuralistic pro- programming? I think you brought it up on a on a different Absolutely. podcast. Yeah, I personally love NLP. I I'm still learning it, but um, a hip, NLP comes from hypnosis. It's an offshoot of it. They they built or they created NLP by studying hypnotists and different therapists to see what made them so effective, and uh, when when I'm both in the hypnosis world and in the business world as an entrepreneur, I see it everywhere. Like a lot of people don't realize that Tony Robbins, one of the most famous business gurus of all time, he is an NLP practitioner Hmm. and these techniques, they're so rapid and you don't have to, you don't have to label them with the, the funny word of hypnosis. You can just call it a visualization technique or a mindfulness technique, or you can just say, Hey, imagine this with me, or it's so flexible. And I, it's something that I'm expanding into more. And I'm also folding in those techniques into the actual trance project process in hypnosis to get some amazing results. So what, like, what would you say to someone, this one is similar to, I think EFT and that, like when I, when I search, mm-hmm. when I read into NLP, it says there isn't really scientific evidence yet supporting, supporting NLP and it's, it's considered pseudoscience. Like would your suggestion be, so I think hypnosis is is a little different in that yeah. there is science to support it, but for this other for these other areas that don't have the support, it, would your recommendation still be like to try it and see if it works for someone because you think like the scientific consensus can change? I would say so. Personally, I believe NLP is a lot a lot bigger track record, especially in the in the in the West uh, than EFT. Uh, I mean, we've been using this since like the the 60s or the 70s, whenever it really started coming out and getting popular. And yes, there isn't a whole lot of science behind it yet. I mean, it's only been around for a couple of decades, but yeah. the the sheer popularity of it in the business community, if you go to any life coach or any business coach, I guarantee you they're using NLP techniques, whether they know them as that or not. NLP is a very effective way at it looks at how our mind works rather than fixing problems. It looks at the processes it does or, or it uses for creating memories or creating our emotions. Cool. Um, thank you. Thank you, Doug, for the past 45 minutes. I've learned uh, a lot about this world that I wasn't that familiar <laughs> with. So I really appreciate it. Is there, is there anything you were hoping to discuss that we didn't get it, that we haven't chatted 
Uh, Man, this has been a, a fantastic conversation. I think we've really touched all the bases. Yeah. Awesome. Well, yeah. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, and it was, it was great meeting you. Absolutely. Great to meet you as well. All right. See ya. <laughs> Bye, Doug. Bye. Thanks again for tuning in to Can I Ask You a Question? If you liked this episode, I'd really appreciate it if you left a rating on iTunes or Google Podcasts or wherever you're listening from so that more people like you can discover it. Also, it'd be super helpful if you'd be willing to leave some feedback on any ideas you have for improving future conversations using the link in this episode's description. Thanks again and see you next time.